we are in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole chapter that is there. It looks like I uh, left it at 19 up at the top there, but we are going through all the, all the verses that are in here. And we want to take a look at what gets God excited. We all can get excited about things that are to come, things that have occurred, things that we're enjoying right now. But the reasons that God gets excited might be different than the things that get us excited. And we get a glimpse of that here in Haggai chapter 2. Last week we were looking at how the people who rose up to do what God had led them to do, it was difficult, it was not easy, took them away from everything that they had known, what they were comfortable with, but they packed up and they went on, made the trek, started to rebuild the altar and the temple faced a lot of discouragement, a lot of opposition, and eventually they quit. And the timing on that says they quit for anything from 14, 15, 16 years, maybe maybe even longer than that, but somewhere in that neck of the woods. And so Haggai was raised up to go to them, to speak to them, and to get them to go. So we saw those things in chapter 1. They had become discouraged, but Haggai comes and he doesn't... He doesn't do what our flesh wants to do, give sympathy, empathy, understanding, things like that. He came out there and said, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Now get up and get going. Those things that minister to our flesh, sympathy, empathy, understanding, they, um, they won't empower you. They just help your flesh. You need things that are going to minister to your spirit. And God will send prophets. He'll send teachers. He'll send people along your path. He'll give exhortations, directives. Basically, they, God wants to get you to do something. It's in the doing that we get recovery. And that's what they needed to do. To their credit, they heard the word from Haggai and they immediately corrected the problem. It's not always the case with people, but it was in this case they, they had done that. Here in chapter 2, begins in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Now, of course, the seventh month, this is when the, everything had begun. Rebuilding of the altar, re- repair of the altar, and they uh, started on some things with the temple. This is their holy, very, very holy month. This is the month that has the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, so forth. All these things come in on this one. Verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And boy, can we fall into this. When we, when God moves in a certain way, when something happens, but we've been around for a while, then we can say, well, I remember when it was like this. Well, I remember when this happened. Well, I remember this move of God. And that was a whole lot better than this move of God. And we begin to make comparisons to it. And what happens is we don't enjoy what we have because our sights are set on what we did have and what was there. And this is what the people here are falling into. They had people who had come from the uh, the land. They saw the temple destroyed. They saw the original temple. 
They made it through all the years of captivity and then they made the trek back. And these people, when they saw the, the new temple, when they saw things that were going on, they were dismayed. They were sad. And of course, the temple is not completed here yet, but they're looking at the foundation. They're looking at some of the things that are going on with it. And they're saying, it's just not going to be the same. It's not quite what it was. So he says, speak now. Speak to the leader. Speak to the high priest. Speak to the remnant of the people. Speak to all of them. The, the leaders are discouraged. The people are discouraged. They're discouraging other people because the temple, the new temple, is not quite what the old one was. So who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory and how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. How many times does the Lord tell us, I am with you? How many times does he say to us, be strong, I am with you? Boy, he says it to Moses, he says it to Joshua, he says it to uh, how many hosts of people, be strong, I am with you. Now, we can relate that to a, to a thing if any, if any of you, when you were little, and you had a, a basement that was not a finished basement. It was an unfinished basement, and it was kind of creepy, and especially little kids, they can get creeped out by basements. They don't always like the basement. They can um, not want to go down there. There's spiders. There's sometimes some mice. Uh, some things you just don't, don't like. There's some noises that we can get tuned in on. We don't like those, and we go down to the basement by ourselves, or maybe we're assigned that. So a parent says, hey, go down to the basement and get this, or do this, and oh, I don't want to go down to the basement, I don't like the basement, the basement's dark, the basement's cold, the basement's wet, the basement's creepy, whatever it might be. Something's going on, we don't like the basement, and we feel weak. Well, well take your brother with you. Uh, Dad, will you come with me? Now we're trying to get, we try and get someone to go with us because if someone goes with us, we feel empowered. We feel stronger. We feel like we can take on whatever it is that's down there. But by ourselves, we don't feel that way. By ourselves, we can get a little weak on what's going on with, with that. So this is kind of what he's saying. But the problem is when we go down to the basement and we go with an older brother or we go with a parent, uh, we can see them. He's always telling people, I'm with you, but you can't see him. So there's a little bit of faith that's involved with this. But don't lose sight of this. We can be strengthened because we know that God is with us. And this is the God who can take care of spiders and anything else that's, that's going on. They don't have to scare him. They don't have to, um, they don't have to set them back. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people that are afraid of spiders. I was listening to one guy this week. And he was talking about how much spiders just creeped him out. Grown man. Spiders just creeped him out. And he uh, he said one day his son was calling him down to the basement to go down and to take care of something or to t take a look at something. I think the son had seen a spider or something like that. And he said, come on down and see this. Said, oh, no, <laughs> not going to do that. But that's uh, <clears throat> that's that's not necessarily going to. Uh, help people there. We need to get. We need to understand God is stronger than any of the things we see that are spiders or that are things that are going to make us weak. 
and he's with us. We can't see him the way we can other people, but you can see ministers to your flesh. God wants you to be strengthened in your spirit. Most people want to be strengthened in their flesh when they encounter spiritual battles. We are encouraged in our flesh when something we see comes along. When I hear a good report, when the doctor I go to tells me some good news, this is stuff that appeals to my flesh, but I feel like I've been strengthened spiritually. We have to learn that if you want to be strengthened spiritually, it's going to be strengthened by things that are unseen, not things that are seen. So when he says, be strong, I am with you. This is something that is unseen. That will minister to your flesh. So a lot more we could say on that, but that's not really the emphasis of the, the whole thing here. But there's a constant comparison by others that we may know of our work. They look at our work and they say, well, your work's not as good as this one over here. Your work is not quite like what brother, sister so-and-so is doing. Your work's not quite like what it used to be. And it can result in us becoming timid. And sometimes we just give up. We just resign ourselves to the whole thing. I'm not just not going to do it. It's not good enough for anybody. Be careful about comparison. Don't let people compare you. Do what God says to do for the moment. What God wanted done 10 years ago is not necessarily the same thing he wants done now. Nor is the move of God the same. So listen to the to God, listen to what's going on and, and do what he says to do. Don't be letting other people tear you down. You're not going to get before God and God says, how can you didn't do it? Well, you know, people were just always comparing me. Uh, God's not going to say, oh, that must have been really hard for you. <laughs> you won't be doing that. You got to just uh, shrug that sort of thing off and listen to him. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So he's with you. Don't forget that he's with you. He, he's telling them here, I came up with you out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Don't fear. I'm not leaving you. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the de desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This part here is the only section of Haggai that is quoted in the Bible. Hebrews quotes it when it talks about the shaking. But this part here, desire of all nations, I think you can pretty much guess what that is. That would be Jesus Christ. I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about this temple right here. He's saying, you're seeing this temple and you see it as coming up short. You see it as not quite being what you wanted it to be. It's not as good as what we had. It's not as good as this thing over here. But he says, I want to tell you something. I will fill this temple with glory. I will bring, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he's looking at this temple that they're building right now. And he's saying this temple is going to be filled with glory. Don't just be looking at it right now. Right now you're looking at it. There's no glory there. You're looking at what its, what its uh, outline is. You're saying it's not going to be anything like what it was. I saw what it was. It's just not going to be there. The one we had before, there was so much gold in it. There was so much silver. 
There were so much precious stones. There was fine wood. All these things were, were part of it. And this one just doesn't have the fine wood. It doesn't have nearly as much gold. It doesn't have nearly as much silver. It may not even have any of the precious stones that the other one had had. And so there's not going to have all that beauty, all that, all that glory. He then goes on and say here, in verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. So he's saying the silver that you say out there, the silver that you covet, the silver that you impart, it's mine. The gold, it's mine. I think what he's saying here is you are looking at how much gold and how much silver is in the temple. I don't look at that. All the gold and all the silver is mine anyway. Whether it's in the temple or not, it's all mine. So I don't look at that part. I'm looking at something else. They were looking at the the outward things that made it look glorious. The silver, the gold, the precious stones. Maybe even it's not as tall as the other one. It's not going to be as big as the other one. It's not going to have certain aspects of it that the other one had. But he says, look, the silver, all the silver that's out there, it's all mine. All the gold, it's all mine. God made it. It's his. Other people may be in possession of it right now, but he says it's all mine. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now we can read this and we can say, oh wow, this is, we can understand this because what we're talking about is the, the temple that is to come is going to be more glorious than Solomon's and we can come up with our reasons for it, but can you imagine being the prophet? who knows what the glorious temple was before that Solomon had built. And here's the stories, knows all the, all the things that were involved in it, uh, heard about the, uh, the, the skilled people, the best skilled people were brought in to cut the marble, the best skilled people were brought in to do the woodwork, the best skilled people were brought in to lay in the gold and the silver and the precious stones. They know all this. And God gives you a word that says, hey, that little shack that's over there is going to be more glorious than the big house that we had before. So think of yourself, put yourself in the prophet's shoes. God gives you a word to speak that this little tiny shack over here, smaller than the other one, not going to have the gold, not going to have the silver, not going to have the precious stones, not going to have all those aspects of the other one. Folks, this is not even going to have the Ark of the Covenant. What are... How can this one be more glorious than what was before? But he he does not judge this. He does not say, well, I can't say that because there's no way that can be true. He goes and speaks it out. That's a tough thing. You can tell just from that one statement right there that Haggai is not a novice. This We only have about you know, a few months of his ministry recorded in in the book. But he was ministering a lot longer than that. He probably ministered even after this. There were things that he did. It just didn't get recorded in the book. He said some things before that established his reputation. They're not recorded in the book either. So we don't know all those things that were there. He has a history. God gave him this word knowing that Haggai would speak it. Because this is a tough word to speak. How can we say that this is going to be as glorious, even more glorious, than before? Well, when we look at have the advantage of looking back on history. We know that this little small temple, smaller, it's not super small. They, they didn't make it miniature. They just couldn't make it quite as big as the, the one that was there before, quite as grand. But Ezra's temple is um, eventually 
remade by Herod. He does some improvements on it. And from what I'm told from people in history, they said that Herod's improvements made Solomon's temple not look as good. That it was quite magnificent. Now, maybe because uh, things were more modern and they had more uh, ability to, to do some things that they had before. It could be something along those lines, but I'll just go you, tell you what the historians would tell us on that. That Herod's temple, as far as glamour was concerned, was more glorious than what Solomon had built. Now, after Solomon had built it, you know, it was raided a couple of times. Uh, and it didn't have the gold after Solomon's reign that it did during Solomon's reign. But one more thing about this one. This temple is the one that Jesus Christ visited. We don't have any record that the angel of the Lord and the Jesus Christ went into the Solomon's temple. We know the Spirit did. The Spirit was in the Ark of the Covenant. And we know that it went in there. But we don't have any record that Jesus went in there. But in the second temple, in Ezra's temple, we know that Jesus went in there. So the Son of God entered in. Well, that could certainly make it a pretty glorious thing right there. But anyway, the people saw that this temple had less than the previous one. So they were disappointed. But God said, look, all that stuff belongs to me anyway. I got streets of gold. I've got gates of pearls. That's not what I'm looking for. Don't get hung up on how spectacular you make the things you do for God. Sometimes we want to make everything that we do for God so spectacular, so appealing in the natural, so appealing in the flesh, that we forget to do what will cause God to be impressed with it, that will cause God to be excited about it. Remember, God was happy with a tent until David decided that God needed a house. And then when God gave him the go-ahead to get things ready, but that his son would build it, well, he just, he just started saving up, setting things aside. He, we're going to make this magnificent. And they did. Well, the people that God selected were less spectacular than some of the people that were around them. Remember David, he wasn't as spectacular as his brothers, but God still picked him. The disciples were not as spectacular as maybe some of the other people that were around there, but God still picked them. God chose those things that man despised. God chooses those things that man rejected to make them into something. Even David went out and he selected the people that no one else wanted. And he made them into the strongest fighting force that was in the world at that time. They did things, exploits. It was uh, quite intense. It's fun just to read over that every now and then. Let's go over here to verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Now these are questions the priests are used to answering. Because people would come to them and say, Hey, this happened, this went on. Am I unclean? Is this unclean? Is this still able to be used for holy purposes? 
And so they had to answer these questions. It was a regular thing for priests to be be asked these kind of questions. So he's not asking them anything out of the ordinary. This is all very normal stuff. So they have answers for it right away. No. Oh, well, yes, that would... It shall be like, become unclean then. So then he goes on in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So he took their judgment and he brought it right into an application into what was going on with the people today. He answered and said, so is this people. That's the people that are here around. Not the people from before and not the people that are to come. This is the people that are right here. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. If the people are unclean, the offering will be too, even if it started out holy. You may have a holy offering. That offering may have passed judgment to be without blemish, to be perfect. But if you bring it into contact with things that are unclean, that holy offering will become unclean. This is what he is saying here. So here's the end result. Uncleanness can be passed on, but not holiness. Uncleanness can be passed on, but not holiness. You cannot become holy by associating with holy people. But you can become unclean by associating with unclean people. Bad company corrupts good morals. You don't want to be walking, you don't want to be associating in a close way with people that have decided to walk in an unclean way. Don't be doing that. As a person, if they were to say, well, God says we shall not do this, but we're going to do it anyway, they make themselves unclean. If you make yourselves unclean and you touch what is holy, what happens to what is holy? It becomes unclean. If I let myself become unclean because I'm doing what God said not to do, but I step out there and do the work of God, what happens to the work of God that I'm doing? Becomes unclean. This is what he's telling them. This is his application. He let them make the judgment. What happens here? What happens here? So they made the judgment and then he passed it on to them. Uncleanness can be passed on, but not holiness. Something clean and holy can be made unholy simply by association. But it is not true for the reverse. I cannot make something that is holy, or un, I'm sorry, something that is unclean become holy just because I touch it. You have to remember that about uh, even people we're associated with. Just because I touch them, just because I'm around them, it doesn't mean they're clean. It doesn't mean that they're holy. They have to do some things on their own. Now, it seemed from the first word given that what made them unclean was their wrong priorities. Their wrong priorities made what they were doing unclean because they gave priority to their houses. <clears throat> may even be that they took some of the wood designated for the house of God and put it in their own houses. But from the first word that he was given, it would seem that their priorities were what made them unclean. That they took the things of God and put it at a lesser level than the things of themselves. 
And really, just about any sin we can imagine is taking the things of God and putting it at a lower level than what we uh, we want. Well, I want this. God's Word says don't do that, but you know I really want that. And so God's Word takes a second level and we ascend to the to the higher one. Wrong priorities can do this. That is all we really have from the first word that would seem that he's referring to, that these people are unclean. So all that time when they had their priorities over God's, whatever it was they were doing, whatever offerings they were bringing, they were making them unclean. And so he's informing them, look, this is how God's looking at what you're doing. You're seeing yourself. I am bringing the offerings to God. I'm coming to the feast. I'm doing all the things that God says to do. But God says, every time, every time you come, every time you do, you're making it unclean because inside yourself, you are unclean. You have touched the things you're not supposed to touch. You're doing the things you're not supposed to do. You have the attitudes that you're not supposed to have. And they were not looking at it that way. If you're unclean on the inside, it makes no difference what the outside looks like. Sometimes Christians will do this. I got unclean stuff on the outside, but if I look really good at what I'm doing for God. If I jump up and down at the right times, if I wave my hands higher than anybody else, if I shout louder, if I get all excited about the things of God, if I give the appearance, but God says, "Uh -uh, I, I see what's going on the inside. Clean up what's on the inside so that what you're doing will be clean. And it will count. But if you're unclean on the inside, it makes no difference what the outside looks like. Take care of it. I remember a story Doug Jones told us one time <clears throat> that he was up there ministering with uh, Brother Hagen. This is way back in his early years. And he was just being uh, a person who was catching the folks, uh, standing behind the people. Brother Hagen was laying hands on them and some of them you know, would fall out and they would be there catching them. Him and uh, I think Mark Brzee were two of the big ones in the beginning that uh, kind of teamed up and helped out with us. And so they were, they were there, they were catching. And he said uh, he was in his head, he, was, he had a wrong attitude, and I forget the details of what he had said about it, had a wrong attitude about some of the things, <clears throat> kind of grumbling on the inside. And he said all of a sudden, Brother Hagin stepped back from laying hands on people, and he looked right at me. He said, man, I repented fast. <laughs> He said, I repented fast. And then uh, Brother Hagin went back and he started laying hands on people again. And so he had the guts to ask him about it later on. I, that takes guts to be able to do that. Then he said, uh, he just came up to me and he said, I apologize. Uh, I had a wrong attitude during that, but I, I straightened it up. And he said, well, he said, I knew something was wrong and I knew it wasn't on my end. <laughs> and, and that took care of that. But you have to be careful. You bring these unclean attitudes in that can shut things down. And that's really what Haggai is telling them about here. Verse 15. And now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one, <clears throat> when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten, but one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, but there were but twenty I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Now, if you go through this with uh, some, some Hebrew works, you will find out that a lot of the words that are in these are inserted. They're not there. 
and it's there just to help you make a little more sense out of it and understand this a little bit more. But uh, it comes down to this. I, don't, I thought I was spending some time on all that, but it's not really that important. It comes basically down to this. You were expecting this, and you got this. You were expecting 20, and you got 10. You were expecting 50, and you got 20. The numbers are right. The numbers are in there. It's just some of the things that are associated with the numbers are not exactly in there the way that it comes out in our translation. But this is how they would understand it. You came in expecting this kind of a harvest. You came in there expecting this kind of a storage. And what you found was something less. That things came against your harvest. Things came against your storage. And what you thought you had, you didn't have anymore. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. So sometimes the things that we're doing for God, it's they're, they're laborious. Not quite yielding what was supposed to be what we expected to have. And it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. It just means you're probably doing it with the wrong attitude. You're not going at it the right way. Fix the attitude and you will find out that what you're doing for God will become a lot easier, a lot more fun. A lot of times if the devil can get people to this place where they are having the wrong attitude, bringing unclean attitudes into holy situations and causing the holiness to, to leave. And so they're laboriously trying to get these things done. They're not having the aid of the Spirit of God the way they expected to or the way they hoped to and the harvest isn't coming in quite the way they want to. Then they just quit. And that's what the devil was after altogether. Well, I'm just going to quit doing whatever. I, God obviously is not with this. I must have missed God or other people are missing God or all the world is, is bad. I'm the only one. Or whatever it might be. Don't do that. The answer is not not doing that. It's, it's getting your attitude right. It's fixing it. You can get your attitude right real fast. Remember that story Brother Hagen told when he was out there on the road and he was not eating the good of the land and so he would bring it up before God and said, God, I'm out here on the road. I left the church. I did what you said to do and I can barely rub two nickels together. He said, and he quoted the verse to him. You said, I would eat the good of the land. If I am willing and obedient, I would eat the good of the land. And he says, well, you were obedient, but you're not willing. <laughs> he said, you keep talking about how, how nice it was before and how good it was before and how hard that was to give up. He says, so you're obedient, but you're not willing. He said, don't tell me it takes long to get willing. I got willing right away. I got down on my knees. I repented. I got willing right away. And things turned around for him right then. And God told him some things to do and he was able to turn that around. But he was experiencing some things, some uh, dryness, some lack of harvest. God was not in that. But that's what he was experiencing. And it was because of a wrong attitude. He brought in a wrong attitude. You can take what God wants you to do, doing what God wants you to do, but you bring the wrong attitude into it. And you'll bring unholiness into that atmosphere, the same way that they are doing it here. Verse 18, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Now, in case that is blind to you at all, what he is saying is this. 
There is nothing in the works right now for you to be blessed. The seed is still in the barn. It's not in the, in the ground just yet. The trees have not come to a place where they're starting to bud or produce. But I'm telling you right now, because of what you've done, because you got obedient, because you changed some things, you made the priorities, God's priorities, your priority, and you repented and you changed. I'm telling you right now, the blessing is on the way. You don't even have the seed in the ground yet, but the blessing is on the way. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that is such a great, a great thing to see that God does not even need the seed in the ground. The blessing is on the way. Now go ahead and put the seed in the ground. Go ahead and do these things. But he's saying the blessing is already on the way. Because of what you've done, it has triggered some things, what I can do in the spirit, and the blessing is already on the way. So the blessing didn't come before. It was a fraction of the normal harvest. But now, based on your obedience, the blessing of the future is already a certainty. Verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is, uh, he got, seemed like two words on the same day. Saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms and I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brothers. Now, when you're doing this shaking, you, you shake something because you want what's in it that you don't want to stay to come down. That's why you shake it. Because you want to get all those things out. If you go out there and you buy a Christmas tree, and you're going to bring a live Christmas tree into the house. What is one of the first things you do before you bring it into the house? You shake it. You don't care if you shook it over at the tree place. You shake it before you get in the house. Because you want all those needles that are already loose. We want them to fall off outside. We don't want them on the ends. We don't want the good needles to come off. We want the bad needles to come off. But you shake it, not for the purpose of driving off the good needles, but for the purpose of getting rid of the bad. When God is shaking some things, He wants to get rid of the bad. Now you may ask this question, why is He shaking heaven and earth? Why not just shake the earth? Well, at the time of this writing, what's in heaven? The accuser of the brethren. That's in the heaven. And then in the heavens, we also have principalities and powers. We're going to shake them out. We're going to get rid of all those things. And knock all those things down. And we know that Satan was eventually shaken, tossed out of heaven during the tribulation period. And the principalities and powers are all going to be shaken. And they're going to come down too. But he's going to do some shaking. He said, just know this. Shaking's coming. I'm going to overthrow the kingdoms. When I shake those kingdoms that are not of me, they're coming down. I'm going to destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltai, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. 
Well, Zerubbabel never becomes a king. He is the grandson of the last legitimate king over Judah. He is the grandson of the last legitimate king of the house of David. He is the legitimate king in line here. But he's not going to be king. He is going to be governor, which means he is subservient to the powers that put him in place. <clears throat> but he said, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I wrote this in your outline. I put the, the verse for us to read it, but you can read that later on. Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. This is used specifically to refer to the king. He calls the king a signet ring. Signet ring also is a sign of authority. It's a thing of value. These are all what he is calling Zerubbabel. He is a thing of value. He has a, a, a sign of authority. He's made into a signet ring. The king that is to come will come from Zerubbabel. And when you look at the lineage of Jesus, he is in that. I believe he is in the lineage on Joseph's side, if I remember correctly. Now, the promise given to David may have seemed to be dead to a lot of the Israelites. Well, we thought David's going to have somebody on the throne forever. And he doesn't have anybody on the throne anymore. Hasn't for 70 years. And even when Zerubbabel comes into town, he's not king. He is governor. But through Haggai, God is telling people, the promise that was given to David, that is not dead. That has not ceased. That is still coming about. Even though your disobedience brought in some things that hindered that, it's still coming about. <clears throat> God is still going to do this. So, let's get to the end here. What gets God excited? What are the things that get God excited? Because if I want to become like God, if I want to become an imitator of God, I got to know what gets Him excited. Because I want to make sure that what gets me excited is what gets him excited. What we're seeing from this word is the things that get some of these old-time Christians here, old-time believers, excited was not the same thing that got God excited. And because of that, they became sad over the very thing that God was excited about. It doesn't sound like we're on the same page there. So he sends this prophet out there. Now, for God is not the outside package that he looks at. He doesn't look at the gold. He doesn't look at the bling. He doesn't look at the education. He doesn't look at all those things. It's not the outside package. It's the hidden man of the heart. We know that from the, the teachings of the word. He's looking for what's on the inside of a person. But how easy is it, is it for us to look on with disdain what God sees with great enthusiasm? And that's what we have here with these, these folks. They look on... What, is, what God is excited, it gives God great enthusiasm to see what's going on because God sees what this temple <clears throat> is going to become. This is what it's going to become. And God is excited about what it's going to become. Whereas people who don't have that vision are not looking at what God is seeing are sad. How easy it is for us to look on with disdain what God sees with great enthusiasm. How do you think God would, would feel 
when he looks down upon us and we're looking at what he sees with excitement and we look at it and say, oh, that's no good. Some of the revivals that are going on, some, I hear some people talking about the, the revivals that are, that are going on with the different schools and so forth and they're condemning them or criticizing them or, you know, well, they don't have this aspect of things and don't have this aspect of things and, and so forth. From what I understand of the revivals that are going on, is that they are revivals of repentance. One thing you will know about the things of God is that God will start something and man's flesh will continue it on. Just about every move of God that he has done, God started it and man's flesh kept it going. When you see a revival like this, a revival is just that. People are coming to God. People are repenting. If that goes on for a long time, it will get off. You can only have repentance for so long before you get into the flesh. Repentance is basically like this, folks. And this is what we saw here in this chapter. We're looking at the word comes from Haggai and three weeks later, they are in full obedience. But they started in obedience right away. They repented and they immediately set about to get the materials they needed to get the thing going so that three weeks after the word, they started to build what God wanted them to do. Repentance should not go over weeks and weeks and weeks. It should not. You get, uh, the Spirit of God comes upon you and says, hey, repent. Well, you repent and it's done. Now you need to go on from that. If you stay in the area of repentance, you will get in the flesh. There's no doubt about it. Because eventually you're going to just start looking for stuff. And the devil's just going to come along and put you into condemnation about things. And then you're going to hear that God is condemning you on this, that, and the other thing. And, well, just show me what else I need to repent of and I'll repent. And you're just spending all your time there trying to find things that God wants you to repent of. That's not what you should be doing. You remember before we, we did a series on uh, short prayers. Five minutes to answer prayers or something like that, I think we called it. The longer you pray for anything, the longer you pray, make a faith prayer, prayer of faith for anything, the longer you stay in prayer, the more likely you are to get into doubt. When you look in the, in the New Testament, we spent a whole, I don't know how many weeks we spent on that, but we started looking at the prayers in the New Testament, the prayers in the Old Testament. When you were in a prayer of faith, it didn't last long. One sentence, most of them are just one sentence. Now, you look at most Christians, you can pray the prayer of faith for 10, 15, 20 minutes. But I guarantee you, somewhere along there, you got out of faith. And you got to a place where you started to talk God into doing something because of someone's merit. What someone deserved. Or you get into pleading and not understanding that God wanted to do the thing. This was the will of God. You don't want to stay in that realm too long. And you don't want to stay in the repentance realm too long. I'll guarantee you that any of these repentance, any of these things that are going on, they're going to last longer than the Spirit of God does. Every single one that has gone on before, they have lasted longer than the Spirit of God. And they will continue to go on and they will push through in the flesh. And then pretty soon, things won't go as well and people will say, well, the whole thing was, was not of God. It is really hard to shut down what God has done when God says we're done. Because when God says we're done, things were still moving. 
And when people shut it down, others get upset. Why would you shut it down? Why would you come against God? Look what God is still doing. And they get mad. Oh, for the people who can tell, the Spirit of God has said we have finished. Now we need to move on. Once you get people to a place of repentance, if you don't capitalize on that and start teaching them some principles of the Word, then they aren't going anywhere and they're not going to last very long because the sun's going to scorch them. The cares of this world are going to choke them. Things are going to come up and they won't be prepared for it and they won't be ready. You cannot stay in a place of repentance and revival. Now, of course, that's the, that's the end thing since we're doing this. I've seen other churches and they're just going to have, well, we're just going to have revival. We're just going to have times of repentance. Have a time of repentance if you need it. But it should be that Christians ought to walk in a way <clears throat> that if they miss it, that God deals with them and they fix it right there. I don't need no service to come to for God to deal with me. God will deal with me when I'm walking out there in the street and say, Steve, you missed it. Oh, I did. All right, let's fix that. I don't need to wait for no service. I need to fix that right away. And you fix it and then you go on. Well, if you don't have an attitude of repentance, if you can't find something that you've done, well, then you just got a wrong attitude and that's why things aren't... No, that's wrong. That's walking around in condemnation. God, We don't serve a God of condemnation. There's a devil who's filled with condemnation. He tries to condemn you. God convicts you. God says, hey, you missed this thing over here. You don't have to be without sin to, to say, I don't need to repent. I don't need to repent because God's not dealing with me on anything. It's not that I'm without sin. It's just there's some sin in there. But God says, well, we're not ready for that one just yet. We'll get there. You don't know enough for that to be sin. But we're going to get there where you're going to see. And then when there is, you'll see it. Then you'll repent. And then we go on to the next thing. <laughs> but he's not going to sit there over there and, and condemn you for it. It's just that we're not ready to, to hit the spot of conviction yet because he doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the understanding of that yet. But once we come into it, then we will. Paul didn't have the understanding that what he was doing was wrong. But when he came into the understanding of it, he repented. And then he went on. He didn't go under, oh, oh, woe is me. Oh, dear, I did this. No. Times of repentance are good. And there are times that a, a nation needs to, to do that. And these kind of meetings are going on. Folks come into it. They get under that atmosphere and, and they repent and, and so forth. Uh, those are not meetings that are going to build up believers. Those are meetings that are going to cause the sinful, those that have wandered from God, to come back to God. But if they don't leave that meeting, they don't leave that place and get to a place where they are being taught, where they are uh, being discipled, where things are being put in them to grow, they won't last. And then uh, all that sort of stuff will fall off. So that's just sort of a side thing. But but it's still easy for us to look on with disdain what God sees with great enthusiasm. When you take a look at acts of a child or a young believer and you look at the things they have done with a pure heart, but all you see is the shortcomings. You look at a young believer and they stepped out and they did something the best that they could do. And you look at that and all you see is shortcomings to it. You are going to look at with disdain what God looks at with enthusiasm. God says, oh, look at that one. They hardly know anything about the word yet. But look at what they stepped out to do. Look at what they are doing. And God gets excited about it. 
And just like when the little kids, little kids, when they draw those pictures when they're little, oh man, they mean, they mean the, the world to you, don't they? Oh, they're wonderful to have those, those pictures that they drew. And you, uh, they, they make the cards. You know, the, the cards the kids made, oh, they are so much better than ones they buy in the stores. I love the ones that they, that they make and that they bring to you. Oh, these are the ones that they made, they, they drew. And, uh, yeah. Oh, they don't have all the pretty pictures on that some of the ones in the stores have, but they made them. They put their, their part on, on that. How would you look at a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a relative who receives a card from a little child who spent time drawing that card, happy birthday, happy Valentine's Day, whatever it might be, and they present that card and the person opens it up and they say, oh, well, this is ugly. Why don't you go to the store and buy one? Oh, what would you think of a person who does that? How would, I mean, would not on the inside of you, you just, just get angry. How could you do that to a little child? Well, the same thing, we can do that to, to people that are under our care. We can do that to young believers. Uh, we get mad and we're walking around the Walmart and we see people do this to the kids that are in there. You gotta be careful the words that you do to your children. You gotta be careful the words that you speak to young believers that are just coming up. They did it with a pure heart. They did it because they felt like that's the best that I can do. Uh, and we just see the shortcomings on it. We just see what's, what didn't measure up. Well, I could have been a lot better. Well, I appreciate that you gave it a shot, but you know, uh, it's just not good enough. You'll discourage people. And God knows that. That's why He doesn't speak to us that way. Maybe what causes some Christians to look down on what others are doing and drive them from the church and drive them from God. It's just not as good as it could be. Just not as good as it should be. We sit around and we judge other people. Well, if I was in that situation, if I had that talent, if I had that ability, this is what I would do with it. How about someone who gives all they have, but we just see it as short. We just see what it should be or what it needs to be. We can't recognize that they just did all that they could. When Jesus was in the back of the temple watching the people bring the offerings and the one water woman came in and she put it into two mites and Jesus was impressed. He didn't compare what she did to the need of the temple to the need of the synagogue, he looked at what she did in light of what she had. And he said, this woman has given more than all the others. Would we have the same attitude looking at that woman that Jesus had or would we look on what gives God great excitement with disdain? Would we do the same thing that the people here were doing? So let's get this question again. What excites God? Gave you some space. You can write down whatever you want to write down. What excites God? Well, he loves what is given with a pure heart, not what is given for a show to those around. He loves what is given with a pure heart, not what is given for a show to those around. I've been to some meetings 
And sometimes you see the group of people that are at the front of the meeting. They're the ones that are involved in the meeting. They're the ones that are running the meeting. And uh, I sometimes, I just, I like to sometimes just watch them. What are they doing when they're sitting in the pew when they're not on the stage? And um, when I see people doing in the pew what they would do when they're on the stage, that gets me excited. I like to see that. All right, well, down here, they're excited. Up there, they're excited. But sometimes you see something different. Down in the pew, they're just sitting there, not even seeming like they're involved. They're very interested in all what's going on. But then their name gets called, and then they go up on the stage, and now all of a sudden they're dancing around, they're, they're shouting, they're doing all sorts <clears throat> Nope, that's done for show. I don't want to get excited over things that are done for show. I want things that are done because this is what's in you. This is what is, is on the inside of you. People who want to get up and, and portray a humble attitude in ministry and then when they get off the stage, just snub people. Just say harsh things to people. That's not genuine. I, that doesn't get me excited. I, I like to see people that are just as kind to people when they come down off the stage as they are when they are up on the stage. God loves what is given with a pure heart, not what is given for a show to those around. So if you want to give, get, uh, give something that God's excited about, make sure you give it from what's on the inside of your heart and just get your heart right. Have a pure heart and, and walk in that. That'll get God excited. Here's another one. Obedience based on what we know, not all that could be known. God gets excited over obedience based on what we know. There are times I have walked in obedience to what I know only to find out years later, oh, that was wrong. <laughs> but I walked in obedience to it because I thought that was right. Well, God can get excited because he said, well, he doesn't know this yet. He thinks that's what I want and look at how he's staying with it. God will get excited over that. We'll look at that and say, oh, but I know better than that. That's not right. And I can look at something with disdain that God is looking at with excitement. So we're not on the same page. I don't have the heart of God in those things. If I don't have the heart of God, I will damage people. Obedience based on what we know, not all that could be known. I know down the road I'm going to know more. And my obedience can be brought to a higher level. Here's a third one. Our pursuit of things deeper, even though we still might be in shallow waters. There are some times that I have pursued some things and I'm thinking that I'm in pretty deep water. But it's still pretty shallow. And I look back on it years later. Wow, I just did not know much about that. I thought I did, but I just did not know much about that. Brother Hagin, one time when we were in class, we were sitting there with him. Uh, he was teaching on some things in the realm of the Spirit. And he said, as far as the realm of the Spirit is concerned, I'm just waiting in ankle-deep water. That was Brother Hagin. To this day, I haven't seen some people move as deeply in some of those things as he has moved in. And he said, as far as the things of the Spirit, I'm just waiting in ankle-deep water. Insinuated there's a lot deeper water out there for him. But he could tell, I'm just in it a little bit. There's far more deeper things. 
I remember the next day one of our professors came in and said, y'all hear what Brother Hagin said? Yeah, yeah, we heard that. Uh-huh. He said, dear Lord, if Brother Hagin is in ankle deep water, where's the beach? <laughs> I still remember that statement he made. Oh, that was, that's right though. We might think that, oh, well, we're just deep, deep as can be. And we're probably not. But our pursuit of things deeper, even though we still might be in shallow waters, God gets excited about that. They realize there's more. And they're delving into something deeper. They're going after something deeper. That's something that gets God excited about. He doesn't desire the bling. He wants the sincere. He doesn't want us to have things that we can wear and display for other people to see about our spiritual walk. He wants the sincerity of what comes from the inside. This temple is not as grand as his, as his predecessor, but it will become even greater. God sees the harvest before it's here. That's what he was telling them at the end here. I see what's coming. Because of your obedience, I see this harvest coming. God can see the harvest coming before it gets here. And he can see the harvest that is coming on this temple before it gets here. And he gets excited about it. If God can look on something and get excited about it, then we sure better be able to get excited at it as well. He saw Abraham as a father of many when everyone else only saw barrenness. He saw a deliverer before he ever delivered. He saw fishers of men while they were still just fishermen. He saw an apostle to the Gentiles instead of a murderer and a persecutor. And he sees what you are called to be. He sees what you are made to be. Not what is reflecting back at you in the mirror. And he gets excited for you, for what he has made you to be, what he has called you to be. And we're stuck looking in the mirror and seeing what we are. And we get down and we get depressed and we look with disdain on what God looks at with excitement. When he made us, he made us with excitement. He made us saying, oh, I'm making this one over here. And they're going to do these things and they're going to go out here. And he sees that because he sees the father of many when he was the father of none. And he sees you, what you're going to be before you ever get there. And so he looks on you with excitement. Now, think about this for the other people that you know of in the body of Christ. Do you look on them with disdain? Do you see them as barren? Do you see them as a persecutor and murderer? Do you see them just as a worker, a fisher of men? What do you see them as? Can you see what God has called people to be? Or are you stuck just looking at what's before your eyes? Because our God is never stuck looking at what is before his eyes. And he demonstrates that so much in this word. I want you to understand that I look at this temple, not for what it is right here today. But you all started this. You put it in operation. 
And sure, it's not going to be a whole lot right now. I, I understand what you're seeing. It's not real big. And then he even comes out and says, are you looking at this and saying it's not what it once was? I understand that. But I am telling you, this temple will be filled with more glory than the one that came before. Because he can see it. Can you get excited about that? Can you get excited at the people that are in the body of Christ with you because of what the potential they have, what God has called them to be? Now, if we can be imitators of faith in God, we surely need to be imitators of God in this area as well. Have the faith of God to see what the seed can be, what the temple can be. Just like when you look at the good a child does. You see a, a child went out there and they did some good. Do you always compare it to what you wanted or expected? Now I say this to you because you can, most, of you can, most of us can imagine this. If you look at what a child does that is, that is good, the child is trying to help out, but they're a child. They don't do it as perfectly as maybe we would like or we would need or we would want. You know, it might be that they, they go to take out the trash and because they're not familiar with trash bags as much as you have been familiar with trash bags, they may spill it. They may rip it. Something may happen with it. Do we look at the good that they did or do we smash them for not having done it the way that we want? Now, I use that example because we can all understand if I do that, I am destroying that child. I am destroying their desire to do what I want. I am destroying their desire to uh, measure up to anything that I want them to be. Because I just say, I cannot become what you want me to be. I can never be good enough for you. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I put out there, it's not good enough. I may as well just quit. And this is what the devil sells people on about God. Your good is never good enough and God will never look at it as being any good at all, you may as well just quit. There are parents all over who do this to their kids. We can look on the outside and we can see it a whole lot easier. And we know the destruction is going to be good in there. If you cannot look at the good that a child does, if you cannot look at the good that a newborn believer does and just build up what they did, thank you so much for trying. Look at what you did over there. I appreciate that you even saw that this needed to be done. Don't worry about the spill. Don't worry about it. You saw that the trash had to go out. That is so cool. I just really appreciated you trying to get out there and to do that. If you cannot build up an individual who is a child, who is a babe in Christ, who is somehow not as skilled as you are, if you cannot build them up and speak of the good that they do without a but, then you are too caught up with pride to be able to build anyone up. And you will always look with disdain on the things that God looks on with excitement. And as long as you follow that path, you will not have the heart of God on just about anything. It will infect you all over. You won't even see it though. Don't walk in that direction. Practice on children. Practice on young believers. Just see the good. Just practice seeing the good. You know, one of the things that, that we had when we were growing up, my, my grandfather was one, oh, he could find the good in anything that you did. 
and he was so appreciative of whatever it is that you would do that, uh, you know, you got excited. Oh, we're going over to uh, Pop-Up's house and uh, we're going to help him with some stuff because we knew, oh, helping him, this is going to be fun. This is going to be good. We're not going to get yelled at. We're not going to be told we did. We just did it wrong. He's just going to be real grateful. He's going to be uh, real glad for all the things that we did. And he was fun to work with. We, we enjoyed it. I was over at his house tarring his roof and enjoying it. Digging up his garden. Helping him dig up his garden. Cleaning up the yard. Doing different things around the house. We would go over there sometimes on Saturdays. Get dropped off by my parents just to help them out on, on things. And That kind of attitude helps you. How good are you at seeing the good in others? Can you go up to another baby Christian and just say, boy, that was good. What would happen if every time that God spoke to you about something that you did, he said, well, that was good, but we eventually we just quit. It would mess with our relationship with our father. Well, that was great, but you know, next time, you need to do it this way. If I expect God to look past my shortcomings, how many expect it? You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you expect God to look past your shortcomings? How many of you expect God, when you serve God and you do your best for God, how many of you expect Him to look past your shortcomings and speak those great words to us when we get to heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant. How many of us want to hear those words? We want to hear those words, but we know we've had shortcomings along the way. I know I have not done everything the way that I should. But I still want, when I get to heaven, I still want to hear those words, right? I still want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If you want to hear those words for yourself, you better start sowing some seeds today. You better start finding some people that are not quite up to par and just get in there and say, well done, that was that was great. That was good. And uh, not saying you can't ever have any kind of positive criticism or some helpful criticism or some, some help, but if you do it all the time, if that's all you do, you are not sowing any seeds and you're not giving God any opportunity to look past your shortcomings. If I show no mercy, I will reap the mercy, I will not reap the mercy that I need. If I show no mercy, I will not reap the mercy that I need. I need to reap some mercy. I need, some, I know I need some mercy when I get up there because I know I didn't do it all right. <laughs> I know I'm going to need some mercy. I'm going to make sure down here I sow some. I put this in your outline for you. If my attitude is an unclean one, what will happen to all that I touch for God? According to the prophet Haggai and his word, if my attitude is an unclean one, what will happen to all that I touch for God? It will be unclean. If I go around, if I say, I'm discouraged, God, I need your help. And I go around and discourage others. What help will I find when I have not been a help to others? If I go around and say, God, I'm just so down. But when I see other people and they have ministered the best that they could and I put them down for it, even if it's an underhand putting down, well, that was really good for, you know, where you're at. 
I'm not giving God something to work with to be able to send a harvest my way. Make sure that you are for others what you want God to be for you. Father, I thank you for these words that Haggai gave to the people of Israel. They were discouraged. We've been discouraged. But these words help us to see your view in this. What was given to be helpful. Father, I pray that you help us to show mercy when we have opportunity to show mercy. To to sow help when we have opportunity to sow help. To sow encouragement when we have opportunity to be encouraging. To not always be nitpicky. To not always feel like we have to be constantly correcting. But to sit back and to enjoy what others have done. Just like we would take that card from the child and just enjoy the beauty that is there in the simplicity of what they drew. If we can get to that place where we can see the joy, the love, the good that is in others who are not at the level that you have brought us to, then we are pursuing the heart of God a lot more than we would be if all we see is fault. Help us, Father, to become more and more like you. That is our goal here on earth. Become more and more like you. I thank you for the help you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.